Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. Uh, this is uh, Brad Constantine again. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about, or this lesson we'll be talking about, 1 Nephi chapter 16. Uh, so this has uh, got a lot of narratives, so this one might be a little bit longer than the other ones. Uh, verse 1. And now it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had made an end of speaking to my brethren, behold, they said unto me, Thou hast declared unto us hard things more than we are able to bear. Elder Maxwell said, God is not only there in the mildest expressions of his presence, but also in those seemingly harsh expressions. For example, when truth cutteth to the very center, this may signal that spiritual surgery is underway, painfully severing pride from the soul. There is kindness in this pain, for as truth, the Lord's laser cuts through to all but the hardest of hearts, so the healing light of the gospel is let in. The outer encrustations of evil can make us so insensitive that only the cuts to the very center have any hope of bringing the desired response. Most of us don't like to be cut to the center, and when the gospel standards cut us, it hurts. The tendency is to deal with the pain by rejecting further surgery. That was Elder Maxwell. Verse 2, And it came to pass that I said unto them that I knew that I, spoke, I had spoken hard things against the wicked, According to the truth, and the righteous have I justified and testified that they should be lifted up at the last day. Wherefore, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. We can either be softened or hardened by our experiences. Wickedness never was happiness. And now, my brethren, if ye were, if ye were righteous and were willing to hearken to the truth and give heed unto it, that ye might walk uprightly before God, then ye would not murmur because of the truth, and say, Thou speakest hard things against us. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did exhort my brethren with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. And it came to pass that they did humble themselves before the Lord, insomuch that I had joy and great hopes of them, that they would walk in the paths of righteousness. Now all these things were said and done as my father dwelt in a tent in the valley which he called Lemuel. Nephi refers constantly to his father's tent as the center of his universe. To an Arab, my father dwelt in a tent, says everything. So with the announcement that his father dwelt in a tent, Nephi serves notice that he has assumed the desert way of life. I think I've read that before. Verse 7. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, took one of the daughters of Ishmael to wife, and also my brethren took of the daughters of Ishmael to wife, and also Zoram took the eldest daughter of Ishmael to wife. Isn't it neat that uh, God had planned all of this ahead of time to have just the right number of people, even had to bring Zoram into the picture here to make sure that one of, uh, one of Ishmael's daughters, uh, in fact, the oldest one, got married? Pretty cool. Okay. Um, verse 8, And thus my father had fulfilled all the commandments of the Lord which had been given unto him, and also I, Nephi, had been blessed of the Lord exceedingly. So as I mentioned, um, this record that we're reading from, the small plates of Nephi, had started, had begun 30 years after they left Jerusalem. So we know that uh, when he mentions here that he'd been blessed of the Lord exceedingly, that he's mentioning that he had a family. He, had, he was married and had children by then. All right, verse 9. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord spake unto my father by night and commanded him that on the morrow he should take his journey into the wilderness. 
And it came to pass that as my father arose in the morning and went forth to the tent door, to his great astonishment, he beheld upon the ground a round ball of curious workmanship. And it was of fine brass. And within the ball were two spindles. And, and the one pointed the way whither we should go into the wilderness. Now, later on, we, we find out that this is called the Liahona. Uh, that's in Alma chapter 37, verse 38. Now, here's some interesting things about maybe what this means. Brother Nibley said, Yah is, of course, God, Jehovah. Leah meaning, means the possessive to God is the guidance. Hona, Liahona, that's just a guess, he says. Don't put it down, but it's a pretty good guess anyway. So he thinks that Liahona might mean to God is the guidance. President Monson said, the same Lord who provided a Liahona for Lehi provides for you and me today a rare and valuable gift to give direction to our lives, to mark the hazards to our safety, and to chart the way, even safe passage, not to a promised land, but to our heavenly home. The gift to which I refer is known as a patriarchal blessing. Every worthy member of the church is entitled to receive such a precious and priceless personal treasure. This Syriac device was certainly not a, a compass in the convention sense. Rather than identify magnetic north, it pointed the direction that they should travel. The Liahona proved to be a reflection of their faith as it would provide direction only as they were faithful and obedient. We'll find later on how true that is, that they weren't even able to travel uh, and follow the, the directions of the Liahona if they weren't keeping the commandments. Verse 11, and it came to pass that we did gather together whatsoever things we should carry into the wilderness. Remember, they have pack animals. This isn't just carrying stuff in their hands. And all the remainder of our provisions, which the Lord had given unto us, and we did take seed of every kind that we might carry into the wilderness. And it came to pass that we did take our tents and depart into the wilderness across the river Laman. And it came to pass that we traveled for the space of four days, nearly a south-southeast direction. And we did pitch our tents again, and we did call the name of the place Shazer. So wondering how they came up with this name. This is a name that they're giving it. So I wonder if that's one of the, the names of one of the sons of Ishmael, maybe the eldest. We don't know. That's just a guess. I'm just guessing about that. But uh, it's interesting that since they gave the name, we call the name of the place Shazer. I wonder if that's uh, <clears throat> one of the sons of Ishmael. Hugh Nibley said, as to the direction taken by Lehi's party, the Book of Mormon is clear and specific. He took what we now know to have been the only possible way out. What with the immediate danger threatening from the north and the eastern and western lands held by opposing powers on the verge of war, only the south desert, the one land where Israel's traders and merchants had felt at home through the centuries, remained open. Even after Jerusalem fell, this was so. And the one route into that desert was the great trade route down the burning trough of the Araba. For a long time, the party traveled south-southeast and then struck out almost due east over a particularly terrible desert and reached the sea at a point to be considered later. Nephi is careful to keep us informed of the main bearing of every stage of the journey, and never once does he mention a westerly or a northerly trend. The party traveled for eight years in but two main directions without retracing their steps or doubling back, and many of their marches were long forced marches. All this entirely excludes the Sinaitic Peninsula as the scene of their wanderings, and fits perfectly with the journey through the Arabian Peninsula. The slowest possible march in a south-southeasterly direction in Sinai would reach the sea and have to turn north within 10 days, but Lehi's people traveled for many days, nay months, in a south-southeasterly direction, keeping near the coast of the Red Sea all the while. Ten days take a foot traveler the entire length of that coast of Sinai, 
which runs in a south-southeasterly direction, and what of the rest of the eight years? Verse 14, And it came to pass that we did take our bows and our arrows and go forth into the wilderness to slay food for our families. And after we had slain food for our families, we did return again to our families in the wilderness to the place of Shazer. And we did go forth again in the wilderness, following the same direction, keeping in the most fertile parts of the wilderness, which were in the borders near the Red Sea. And it came to pass that we did travel for the space of many days, slaying food by the way, with our bows and our arrows and our stones and our slings. And we did follow the directions of the ball, which led us in the most fertile, in the more fertile parts of the wilderness. And after we had traveled for the space of many days, we did pitch our tents for the space of a time, that we might again rest ourselves and, and obtain food for our families. The Lord expects us to all to do all we can for ourselves before. Okay, uh, verse. Um, let me let me look at something here first. Hold on just a second. So I want you to pay attention to some things here as we go on um, and ask a few questions. Why would it be helpful to know how Nephi solved his family's problems? Um, notice in these next few verses, what did Nephi do instead of complain like the rest of the family? How does hard work and, and taking positive action help resolve your problems? Why did Nephi approach his father for help? What did the Lord tell Nephi to do? And how did the Leahona function? How was the family crisis resolved? So let's look at some of these questions here as we go on. Verse 18, And it came to pass that as I, Nephi, went forth to slay food, behold, I did break my bow, which was made of fine steel. Now think about what they've been doing. They've been traveling from Jerusalem, which is probably the area from which his bow was made. His bow and arrow had been made. Now they're traveling south, south, southeast, going down the peninsula of Saudi Arabia. The weather is probably getting drier as they go. And so the steel bow that, they, that he has is changing its nature just because of the weather that they're going through and the humidity that they're experiencing. Uh, let me read you a couple things here from Brother Nibley. Through the years, the critics of the Book of Mormon have constantly called attention to the mention of steel in that book as a gross anachronism. But now we are being reminded that one cannot be dogmatic in dating the appearance of steel since there is more than one kind of steel with a whole series of variants in the combination of iron and steel components in ancient times. And when a particularly fine combination was hit upon, it would be kept secret in individual workshops and passed on from father to son for many generations. Hence, it is not too surprising to learn that even in early European times, there is evidence for the production of steel of very high quality and extreme hardness. Further east, steel is attested even earlier. And after I did break my bow, behold, my brethren were angry with me because of the loss of my bow, for we did obtain no food. Again, Brother Nibley, Nephi had brought a fine steel bow from home with him. Though we shall consider steel again in dealing with the sword of Laban, it should be noted here that a steel bow was not necessarily a solid piece of metal any more than the Canaanites' chariots of iron were solid iron or than various implements mentioned in the Old Testament as being of iron. That is, carpenters' tools, pens, threshing instruments were iron and only iron. It was in all probability a steel-ribbed bow since it broke at about the same time that the wooden bows of his brothers lost their springs. Only composite bows were used in Palestine, that is, bows of more than one piece, and a steel back bow would be called a steel bow, just as an iron-trimmed chariot was called a chariot of iron. Incidentally, the founder of the Turkish uh, dynasty of Iran was called yakak, which means in Turkish, says our Arab informant, a bow made out of iron. The fact that iron arrow was a fairly common name among those people 
and refers actually to an iron-headed arrow is a strong indication that the name steel bow may also refer to a real weapon. Lehi in the desert, that's from Lehi in the desert in the world of the Jaredites by Brother Nibley. Uh, from, from William Hamblin, he says this, composite bows have a specific structural problem that leaves them susceptible to changes in temperature and climate, which may cause the bow to warp and break. A 14th century Arab master archer advised that an archer should never neglect his bow for a single moment, and in extremes of temperature, he should inspect it day and night, hour by hour. Such care in protecting a composite bow from warping is necessary because the neck has a natural tendency to lateral displacement. Should side warping of this kind not be detected and the bow be drawn, the defective limb will be subjected to a most severe twisting, strain, and possibly break. Thus, if Nephi's bow were of the composite type, his move from the more temperate climate of Palestine to the dry heat of the Arabian Peninsula could have contributed to the, the risk that his bow might warp and break, which is what happened. Verse 19, And it came to pass that we did return without food to our families, and being much fatigued because of their journeying, they did suffer much for the want of food. Verse 20, And it came to pass that Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael did begin to murmur exceedingly because of their sufferings and afflictions in the wilderness. And also my father began to murmur against the Lord his God. Yea, and they were all exceedingly sorrowful, even that they did murmur against the Lord. Now it came to pass that I, Nephi, having been afflicted with my brethren because of the loss of my bow, and their bows having lost their springs, it began to be exceedingly difficult, yea, insomuch that we could obtain no food. This would locate the incident roughly in the vicinity of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where the weather is a merciless combination of heat, humidity, sand, and salt, a force strong enough to destroy steel. We were stunned to see holes that had rusted through car fenders in a few months' time between March and November. The heat is pitiless. Even in late January, the temperature hovers around 85 degrees. Humidity averages about 60% year-round, and in the moisture part of the 15-year cycle, the humidity rises to a year-long average of 92%. Unpainted metal simply cannot survive such conditions. We saw little metal used in either local building or the shipyards. Could this have also happened to Nephi's bow? Weakened by rust, it could have snapped in his hands when he drew it to its limits. The climate would also explain why his brother's bows lost their springs at or around the same time. If they were wooden bows, they would have remained tensile and strong in the dry area around Jerusalem. But several years in the humid climate along the Red Sea's coastal plain when it would inevitably have caused them to absorb moisture until they became as limber as saplings. In fact, acquaintances of ours often reported similar experiences with some of their wood possessions. And this is from Lynn and Hope Hilton. Uh, in the book, In Search of Lehi's Trail. Verse 22, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did speak much unto my brethren, because they had hardened their hearts again, even unto complaining against the Lord their God. Nephi was having just as hard a time as his brothers, yet he did not murmur like they did. Verse 23, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did make out of wood a bow, and out of a straight stick an arrow. William Hamlin says, In reality, nearly any arrow can be shot from any bow. The basic limiting factor is the length of the arrow versus the length of the bow. Shooting short arrows from long bows is difficult. Short arrows can be shot from a long bow only if the string is not drawn back fully, which greatly reduces efficiency. Nephi's steel bow must have been a metal back wood weapon that was common in the Near East of his day, which would not have shot an arrow substantially heavier than other bows. Why then did Nephi make a new arrow? There are two possible reasons. First, 
As arrows are continually shot in hunting, they become lost or broken. He may simply have run out of arrows and needed a new one. Second, Nephi very likely owned a metal-backed recurved composite bow as discussed previously. Recurved composite bows can achieve the same draw weight with a much smaller string and draw length than a longer bow. In other words, recurved composite bows shoot shorter arrows than longer bows. If Nephi's old bow was the recurved composite type and his new one was a short staff bow, which is the simplest to make on short notice, he may have needed to make a longer arrow because of the longer string and draw length of his new bow. So he would have had to have made a longer arrow probably than the one he had before. Wherefore, I did arm myself with a bow and an arrow, with a sling and with stones. And I said unto my father, Whither shall I go to obtain food? Now Nephi is asking his priesthood leader here for guidance. Even though he was complaining, he still went to his dad uh, for help. The bishop may be a humble man. Some of you may think you are superior to him, and you may be. But he is given authority direct from our Father in heaven. You recognize it. Seek his advice. Recognition of authority is an important principle. That was from President McKay in a conference talk in 1965. Leaders of the church are men with human frailties and are imperfect in their wisdom and judgment. Perfection in men is not found on the earth, but these leaders hold a divine warrant and commission through which great and eternal blessings come to those who sustain and follow them. That was Brother James E. Faust in a conference given in, 18, in 1985, the conference talk. Verse 24, And it came to pass that he did inquire of the Lord, for they, did, for they had humbled themselves because of my words. For I did say many things unto them in the energy of my soul. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came unto my father, and he was truly chastened because of his murmuring against the Lord, insomuch that he was brought down into the depths of sorrow. This was a godly sorrow, true, true repentance. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord said unto him, Look upon the ball, and behold the things which are written. And it came to pass that when my father beheld the things which were written upon the ball, he did fear and trembled exceedingly. And also my brethren and the sons of Ishmael and our wives. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the pointers which were in the ball, that they did work according to the faith and diligence and heed which we did give unto them. And there, were also, there was also written upon them a new writing, which was plain to be read. The language in which the messages of the Liahona was written are, were, was new to Lehi and his family, and yet easily understood by them. No additional commentary is given on the matter. We are left to wonder whether it was pure Adamic and whether it influenced the nature of their written language thereafter. So we don't know if, this, uh, if the words were in the Adamic language or in the Hebrew or whatever. Uh, continuing verse 29 which did give us understanding concerning the ways of the Lord, and it was written and changed from time to time according to the faith and diligence which we gave unto it. And thus we see, now notice uh, in these scriptures too, there's a lot of thus we sees, and this is an indication when uh, the writer is telling us to pay attention to the lesson that's being given here. So this is a thus we see, that by small means the Lord can bring about great things. Um, Elder Russell M., M. Russell Ballard said, a series of seemingly small but incorrect choices can become those little soul-destroying termites that eat away at the foundations of our testimony until before we are aware we may become near to spiritual and moral destruction. In a similar way, the, sm the small acts of kindness, the tiny deeds of Christian service, the silent but significant efforts to control our own thoughts and feelings, these are the simple things that build character and shape human destiny everlasting. The world takes notice of the public accomplishments, the spectacular victories, but who knows of the private battles of the soul, thousands of them waged and won by Abraham, long before he passed his great test on Mount Moriah, 
to, to become the friend of God. Who knows of the infinite struggles, the buffetings, the adversarial onslaughts faced and overcome by the sinless son of man in the garden of the oil press, finished before his public victory over the grave on Golgotha. Truly the little things form and shape the disciple of Christ. All right, verse 30. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did go forth into the top of the mountain according to the directions which were given upon the ball. And it came to pass that I did slay wild beasts insomuch that I did obtain food for our families. And it came to pass that I did return to our tents bearing the beasts which I had slain. I wonder why his brothers didn't go with him on this trip. It seems like he's doing this all by himself. And now when they beheld that I had obtained food, how great was their joy. And it came to pass that they did humble themselves before the Lord and did give thanks unto him. And it came to pass that we did again take our journey, traveling nearly the same course as in the beginning. And after we had traveled for the space of many days, we did pitch our tents again that we might tarry for the space of a time. And it came to pass that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Nahum. Now this is a significant name here that's being mentioned and we need to pause here for just a minute in the story and kind of go over this. Uh, now this is a place that has a name. The Nephites aren't naming it so this already had a name. Uh, let me read you this here from um, an Ensign article of 2001. A group of Latter-day Saint researchers recently found evidence linking a site in Yemen on the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula to a name associated with Lehi's journey as recorded in the Book of Mormon. Warren Aston, Lynn Hilton, and Gregory Witt located a stone altar that professional archaeologists dated to at least 700 BC. This altar contains an inscription confirming Nahum as an actual place that existed in the peninsula before the time of Lehi. The Book of Mormon mentions that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Nahum. This is the first archaeological find that supports a Book of Mormon place name other than Jerusalem or the Red Sea. Note that it, it says the place called Nahum, not a place. There really was a place named Nahum. It means comfort or to sigh or mourn. So I think that's significant to note the name of the place Nahum, which is a name that, that, that actually existed and, and they found now to, to be the case in this area. Verse 35, and it came to pass that the daughters of Ishmael did mourn exceedingly because of the loss of their father and because of their afflictions in the wilderness. And they did murmur against my father because he had brought them out of the land of Jerusalem, saying, Our father is dead, yea, and we have wandered much in the wilderness, and we have suffered much affliction, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. And after all these sufferings, we must perish in the wilderness with hunger. And thus they did murmur against my father and also against me, and they were desirous to return again to Jerusalem. Now, it seems like if I was Nephi, I'd probably tell my brothers, go ahead and leave. That would, they would have been better off, I think, but that's just me. Verse 37, And Laman said unto Lemuel, and also unto the sons of Ishmael, Behold, let us slay our father, and also our brother Nephi, who has taken it upon him to be our ruler and our teacher, who are his elder brethren. The law of seniority is very strict among the Jews, and to give a firstborn second place to another was a grave offense. <clears throat> 38. Now he says that the Lord has talked with him, and also that angels have ministered unto him. But behold, we know that he lies unto us. I wonder how they can say that after they have seen an angel themselves. And he tells us these things, and he worketh many things by his cunning arts, that he may deceive our eyes, thinking perhaps that he may lead us away into some strange wilderness, and after he has led us away, he has thought to make himself a king and a ruler over us, that he may do with us according to his will and pleasure. And after this manner did my brother laymen stir up their hearts to anger. 
And it came to pass that the Lord was with us, yea, even the voice of the Lord came and did speak many words unto them and did chasten them exceedingly. So even though that they're doing wrong things here and complaining and murmuring, the Lord is still trying to help them and to convince them of truth. Rarely are those who have given themselves up to wickedness addressed directly by the voice of the Lord. Laman and Lemuel herein share an experience with Cain, to whom God spoke directly in warning of endless damnation that would be his if he continued his present course. Cain reacted with anger to his experience, to this experience, and we read that he listened not anymore to the voice of the Lord, neither to Abel his brother who walked in holiness before the Lord. In this instance, however, Laman and Lemuel staged another of their short-lived periods of repentance. During that period, the family was again blessed with food. Continuing the verse, and after they were chastened by the voice of the Lord, they did turn away their anger and did repent of their sins insomuch that the Lord did bless us again with food that we did not perish. So it's my prayer that we might each uh, look within ourselves and do those things that need to be done to repent so that we can have the blessings of the Lord. I bear testimony of the truthfulness of these words that we're reading in the Book of Mormon, and I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may like, share, subscribe. Make comments if you like. See you next time. Bye.